Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. We have a special guest today, Rajya Gleis. She is an author and she's written a book called The Followers. And it is about her experience of being in a cult. So if you have seen the documentary, it's an excellent documentary called Holy Hell. Um, you will know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen it, please do see it. But um, Rajya, welcome to Arash's World. Well, thank you, Arash. I, um, the book, uh, the Holy Hell came out in 2016. And it was presented and very did very well at Sundance. And then it was uh, uh, one of the top 10 documentaries on Netflix. CNN bought it. And now it's available on Amazon uh, Prime. Um, and so, you know, when 2016 happened and the election happened, um, I saw some very familiar things coming down a, an escalator uh, that reminded me of uh, the experience of being with a narcissistic sociopathic leader for 25 years. And so that was sort of the inspiration of why I decided to write this book. So the book is, um, I'll show you, here it is. There it is. Great. That's the followers and it's Holy Hell and the Disciples of Narcissistic Leaders. Um, how my years in a notorious cult parallel today's cultural mania, at least I think in the United States and around the world, some pretty crazy stuff is happening. So um, I dove deep into why we do the things we do, why we follow leaders like that and whatever. So fascinating stuff so what i'd like to just talk about first just to kind of um set the tone here and to for others to to know what we're talking about so it's buddha field is that the name of the cult and it started in 1985 if i'm correct 1985 around there mid 80s well um no actually technically and we named it the buddha field so hmm. i want to make it clear there is um there is an organization i understand um called the buddha field festival mm -hmm. um another uh person had notified me saying she's going to the buddha field festival next week and i'm like are we having a festival? So it is not related to Buddhism nor Pure Land uh, Buddha or Buddhism. Um, so it's it's a very eclectic. Uh, most of it is Hindu related, and it technically started in the late seventies in Florida, mm -hmm. and then he moved to Los Angeles in nineteen. 84 is when I joined uh, in Los Angeles, and it really kind of grew exponentially in LA. And then we moved um, in 1991 to Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. and we were here until we abolished him, basically. Um, and he fled to Hawaii in 2016, uh, 2016, 2006. Mm -hmm. So, so it started off, it wasn't a cult. I think there's the idea it was an anti-cult and it started off as a group of people coming together, sharing ideas, having a great time and basically living a free life, um, 
enjoying their lives. So uh, it seemed like a very happy community and you can see it in the um, uh, Holy Health a documentary. It starts off as this idyllic place of utopia. What happened after? Well, you know, I've had people often say, why did you join a cult? <laughs> and it's like no one wakes up one day and goes, you know, I'm going to join a cult. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. And the, the sort of the challenging thing with the filmmaker um, on Holy Hell, he had about 45 hours of footage and he had archival footage of 30 years. And so he had to build this story and put it in a hundred minutes. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I saw, which was a challenge, um, I've heard many podcasts um, talk about Holy Hell, which is a really weird phenomenon when perfect strangers are talking about you. Um, and I thought, you know what? There's a lot of misconception when they look at this film. Um, because you have to understand, this is like the old tale of the frog in, in warm water. Um, the, the metamorphosis of this happened over a period of between 22 and 25 years. And so you're right, when we started, <clears throat> we, and, and I write a lot about this in my book, um, especially in Los Angeles, growing up in Los Angeles in the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, there were, first of all, towards the 70s, there was a cult on every block, basically. You had Scientologists and Hare Krishnas and, you know, all kinds of different groups. And there was like major cultural movements that were happening at that time. And it was sort of uh, the post 60s, the 60s was a huge revolution. Um, so you had, you know, civil rights and gay rights and women's rights and hippies and ah, everyone was just going crazy. And then as, you know, sort of our life started to change in the 70s when so many things had occurred, the Kennedys were murdered and, you know, Jim Jones and, you know, Manson and, you know, Nixon and, you know, all of these things that <clears throat> the hippies started to turn into yuppies, you know, and so there was this schism in the society where there were those who were just you know, going for making money and, and, you know, really being ambitious to those who were still kind of really anti-establishment, you know. And so that's where the Buddha field started to draw each other. We, we just were young. We were, most of us, very young in our 20s for the most part. I was in my late 20s. Um, and we wanted to live a spiritual life. And at this particular time, we were kind of moving away from sort of Western Christianity. We were looking for things that were not so dogmatic and a little bit more freeing. And so I talk about in my book, my journey. I mean, where I grew up, I grew up in Brentwood, California, which is you know where OJ Simpson hailed. And I was in a very kind of affluent life. And none of that mattered to me. I wanted to look for a deeper life. And so Indian spirituality started really becoming very popular, especially on the West Coast at the time. 
so you know we were we were looking for something mm-hmm. and um you know i tell my journey in the, my book is divided into three sections so the first section is called the journey so it's my life from like birth to how did i get to how did a well-educated you know woman from an affluent background find herself in a destructive cult um and that sort of begs the question for a lot of you know different people but everybody's got their story and that's what my story is about so you came together as a group so it was also the idea of like feeling a solidarity with each other of like as a community of looking for the same thing so there's this idea of identification with the group and with the leader who presented himself in a different way than he actually was and this is a specific talent that narcissists have of um they can basically take on any role that they wish they study it and then they impersonate it but sooner or later exactly. you do get to see the real self come through and it might be it's really easy to say it in hindsight oh that i should have seen this but what were some some warning signs where you might have heard like you might have thought this can't be right did you have any of those moments and what were they specifically as here oh sure well you know in the in the beginning it was it had nothing to do with him mm-hmm. um And in the beginning, when I was there, there was only 15 people and it grew exponentially. And it wasn't that we were recruiting. We weren't like, oh, we have a mission and we're going to whatever. It was like I invited my friend and they invited their friend and 15 became 30 and 30 became 60. And it it grew organically and, you know, exponentially. And it was based around um, these particular techniques. These were techniques of meditation uh, that, like you said, very astute, um, that he stole, basically. Um, He stole the techniques from um, Primpal Rawat, and he was better known as Maharaji. And uh, he basically started making them his own. But in the beginning, it was all about the techniques. It was all about getting ready for them. It was all about the four techniques, which was the light, the music, the nectar, and the word. And so these techniques were what all of the people before me were all talking about. They were all initiates. And so they were talking about this incredible experience that they were all having. So obviously that was the goal. And so in the beginning, he never, he never said, you know, I'm going to give this to you. He always said, this isn't me. This comes from you. I'm just the midwife, as he said. I'm just going to show you the techniques. So in the beginning, it started out being connect to God's love. And then within really a couple of years of when I was there, the the narrative changed to connect to my love. Uh Yes. (laughs) Right. And so when that happened, you know, some of the elders like myself started going, Hey, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, like what's this connect to my love stuff, you know? So I I confronted him on that and I asked him, you know, what is this about? And, you know, he, he said, well, Radia, some people, not you, because he knew that he couldn't, you know, he, he, he definitely compartmentalized and picked everybody differently. So everybody had a different experience. So my experience was very different than Wills, the filmmaker. 
I was a female, first of all, I was not sexually abused. He was homosexual. I didn't even know of the abuse until actually quite a, until the movie was made, which was 10 years after I left. I didn't know the nature of the abuse. So he basically said his explanation, which most narcissists are very clever talkers and they figure you out and they figure out what you want to hear and they can, they will become what you want them to become. So he was different um, for every person practically, you know, and so when you saw him one-on-one, -on -one, he may be very different to me than he was to the next person. And he could figure you out and remember, I mean, he made his living out of hypnotherapy. <laughs> so as I say in the movie, we literally handed him our psyche every week. So he knew all of the skeletons in our closet. He knew all of our fears. He knew all of our deep stories. And so anytime you wanted to challenge him, he would basically tap into that and talk you out of your question, you know? So he was very, very clever. And in a short period of time, I was initiated. And then there was another initiation after about two years after that was Will's initiation. And then he stopped having initiations. That makes sense. So, makes sense. yeah. So like for 18 years, the rest were kind of hung there on a dangling carrot. So out of 150 of us, there was only about 40 of us that were initiates, which really kind of built this hierarchy. Um, so, and most societies have an, a hierarchy. There's always, you know, usually a leader at the top and then his immediate entourage and then his minions below that. And then there were aspirants and then there were newbies. And so we found ourselves just sort of inadvertently taking on these roles. And so it, it slowly changed. It changed when he started, um, this was about two years after I was with him. He started giving what's called Shakti, which he also stole from Muktananda. And uh, he started giving Shakti in the satsang room. And uh, so it went from connect to God's love to connect to my love. And so the new people that were coming in did not get the original message that we did. And, and we didn't accept it because when they, when you come in kind of midway, you see it differently. I'm thought, I'm, I'm thinking of Stanley Milgram's prison experiment where he had exactly um, he chose as, as the prisoners and the other ones as the guards. And yeah. so they went along and accepted that reality, that narrative that was going on. And then Absolutely. when the uh, prisoners, uh, so-called quote unquote prisoners left, they had a new one come in and he thought this is madness. This yeah. is crazy. How do you accept that? So it's so easy for, for us outsiders to judge and say, why did you go along? But when yeah. you're slowly growing into that mold and you are living with others, it is very, very different. The story is different. Exactly. And this exactly. is a lot of the cults actually like to break off any communication with the outside world because they don't want you to think that things are different outside. So you are in your own world that you take for granted. Would you, would you agree? Right. And, and when you disconnect from the outside world, then you start cutting all the bridges. Mm -hmm. And so then the family and the community becomes your family and it becomes your friends. And for the most part, as you can see in the film, we were having a good time. 
it was like, yeah, there was some quirkiness that started to change. But I also talk about in my book how it was a collective deception. It wasn't just him. Yeah. It was his, in that hierarchy, the ones, his immediate entourage played along with it. And so he, he was doing a lot of parlor tricks and a lot of uh, sneaky things that the rest of the upper echelon was playing along with. And that's a complex story of why they did. And he would convince them, well, this person needs, you know, they need to feel like they're blah, blah, blah. And he'd give them a line. So they would, you know, use cognitive dissonance and they would change the narrative to suit whatever they needed. Um, and so they played along with it. And there's a scene where I'm looking it's understand that I mean when Will um, he interviewed me for four hours and he, he snipped out maybe five or six minutes out of four hours of footage mm -hmm. so there's a scene in that film where I'm looking into the, it looks like I'm looking into the camera but I'm looking at Will who's right behind the camera and I said uh, I didn't know you know and what I was saying to him is yeah, Jaime lied, but so did you, and so did everyone. You know, it was this collective deception. And if I had known, I would have never let it get that far. In and cases, you also see what you want to see, or you try to excuse, absolutely, make up pretexts and excuses for that. And 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 we see that. And I love your focus on the followers because a leader is nothing without the followers. Even though we no. we blame them and we say, okay, or we say this is the leader, without the followers, they're nothing. So, and this is something we're seeing in the world right now with narcissistic mm -hmm. leaders, where are right. we see these people blindly following somebody who is a tyrant, who is a right. sociopath, a psychopath. Right. Yes. So what should we do about that? What can we do? How can we build like a firewall or like antivirus to like stop that from happening? And when we right. talk about cults, I mean, there are many types of cult-like organizations. It is basically yeah. most religions would fall into that. And yeah. um, what can we do to to safeguard against this kind of deception, deceit? What would you say? Well, yeah. yeah. So so the first thing that I often hear, I hear it within the Buddha field and I hear it on podcasts and I hear it in the political atmosphere today. Mm -hmm. um, people say, oh, they're brainwashed. And I, I get very specific on these terminologies because we have to be very careful with these words. That word brainwash is a very easy, simple, fast word, but it isn't accurate. The actual literal definition of brainwashing is to radicalize someone's belief, usually under duress, torture, or imprisonment, okay? None of us were under duress, torture, or imprisonment, and none of us were radicalized. We were already believing this, okay? So when you use the word, oh, they're just, you know, brainwashed, you take the responsibility away from the follower and you make them a victim. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very complex notion. Are they a victim or are they a perpetrator? In other words, Adolf Hitler could never have done what he did if it wasn't for his followers. And every single narcissistic authoritarian leader that has done atrocious things on this planet and are doing it today, they're not doing it 
It's their followers. And their followers are not generally radicalized. Their followers believe in these kinds of ideas. Now, yeah, they're influenced by propaganda. They're influenced by the media. Uh, they're influenced by nowadays, our media is our own private echo chambers. And we all just lock into our echo chamber. And I have mine, I know, and others have theirs. And so it's a feedback loop. You know, and so as the follower, I mean, we we built Jaime. Jaime was, you know, he had narcissistic tendencies, but especially in with spiritual leaders, um, religion is so abstract. God is so abstract that you can pretty much do anything you want with manipulating that, and there's no proof or disproof. So it's what the followers want. And the more you want it, the more you're willing to, to let go of your disbelief. And especially when, and I, I mentioned this in, in my book, it's like, you know, when you go to Disneyland, you know that it's fake. You know that it's, you know, it's, it's a fantasy, but you're willing to forego the fantasy or the fake to, to enjoy the ride. But what if you don't know it's fake? What if your family and your friends and everyone you trust, especially the one that you admire the most, is telling you a lie and they're perpetuating the lie and you don't know that it's not a fake? So that becomes very, very complex because you, you start to feed the narcissism in the leader and the leader gets bigger in its narcissism, narcissism and it's usually a male. And so as that narcissism grows, then it demands being fed. And in order to keep what you've got, you feed it and it's a feedback loop. And it's very, it can be extremely dangerous. This is why I think it's, when I wrote this book, which has taken me two and a half years. And as I say, in the beginning of my book, I'm a researcher, I have a graduate degree and I'm experienced. And I spent two and a half years researching propaganda, researching narcissism and sociopathy, researching why we do the things we do to try and understand on a deeper level. And I do use the prison experiment mm -hmm. yeah. and I use, you know, I do use um, other important research um, to try and figure out why I'm not stupid. I'm not gullible. I'm not whatever. How did this happen? And that's, you know, that's why I had to trace all the way back to me as a kid. You know, I grew up and my parents were uh, entrepreneurs and I was like a latchkey kid with a maid and a governess. You know, I was on my own. I had what psychologists refer to as secure attachment. I had no secure attachment from the day I was born. And so I was looking for that secure attachment and I found and created my own family. So it's a lot, after a while, um, you know, he just started becoming more and more eccentric and more crazy to follow back to what you had said, when did you start noticing, you know, some weirdness. Um, there was some trouble in Los Angeles and I, I, that's in my book and I won't go into detail, but he, we had to move out of Los Angeles because there was a, there was a guy who was a bit of a psychopath who was stalking us. He was actually stalking one of the young women that was in the group and 
he threatened to have her kidnapped and deprogrammed and he was involved in cult awareness network and yada, yada, yada. So I, my relationship with Jaime because of my background, my father being a lawyer and all these other things, I was kind of his Michael Cohen. I handled all of his legal advice and I handled uh, lawyers and things like that. So I put this gentleman in jail. So the DA said, look, you know, I can only, we can only keep him for three months. And when he gets out, he's going to be pissed. So she suggested we leave. And we did. And it was at that point, we, we went from there, his, he and his entourage only moved to Arizona. And then we went to Boulder and we were looking for the next place to land. And it was at that point that the elders, the entourage started noticing his his paranoia was getting more and more dark and deep and obsessive. And so a lot of us at that point, and that was in 1991, we started really becoming disenchanted with him. But the thing was, is that we didn't know that he was doing any harm. Mm -hmm. So he became sort of like the eccentric uncle we had our family and it was established and we loved each other and we had this community and he was sort of the, the clown, you know, and he was the glue that held us together. But the ones that were older really started to become dis, disenchanted with him. And I came to the point when we finally landed in Austin, I came to the point in 1995, um, I woke up one day and said, I'm going to leave. I'm out of here but I didn't leave until 2006 because I couldn't. And I couldn't because it, it's so complex. One, I had, my parents were dead. My family was gone. They had disowned me. There was no one on the outside that I could go you know, rekindle relationships with. These were my brothers and sisters. I loved them. And I loved the disciplined life that we were living. When you see us in the in the movie, some people called us the beautiful, the cult of the beautiful people. And we were. Yes. We were. I mean, we were doing healthy stuff 30 years ago that is only now becoming trendy. And so you really couldn't live that kind of life unless you had a, a commonality with your with your peers. So I just kind of put up with it for another, God, another 11 years. Um, and was, you know, I just sort of couldn't leave. And also we did see what happened to people who did. That's a whole nother thing. I knew that if I had to make that choice, I would be demonized. I would be ostracized. And I was, I was beyond that. He, he was conspiring to have me killed. So it was not, not a, uh, it was not a choice that you made lightly. Um, and you knew there's no going back. We saw people that left and what happened to them and what, what he and the group did. Very similar to what our ex-president does to people when you are no longer uh, supporting him and his narcissism. He'll destroy you. Mm -hmm. And he destroys everyone in his wake. Well, Jaime was the same. 
I mean, they have no scruples, no respect for others, no ethics. None. It is None. Something that's very it's, scary. Yes. Yeah. And it can, and it can get, I mean, fortunately, my group um, still had a moral compass, thank God, or I wouldn't be here. Um, but some don't, you know, some get radicalized and they get fanatical. I mean, look at Jim Jones, yes. you know, um, they, they can do that. So I agree with you that brainwash is not the right word, but I, I, I really, um, um, something that you talked about, about the secure attachment, I think that's really important. And that's something people would have to dive into because what is it that these people are looking for? And you're all, all good people who are looking for yeah. something and you're looking for that yeah. same family, that connection, that spiritual right. connection, something that we feel in our daily life is missing. It's empty, right. it's void. And so once you find that, you get excited. And then once you spend many years in it, and then you realize that it, you, you basically made a wrong bet. And yeah. you don't want to accept that because that hurts. Because it hurts, you say, I've invested so much time and money right. and effort into this, and it was not worth it. It's devastating. Yet at the yeah. same time, there are many benefits there. That connection that you're talking about is real. What you're feeling with others is real. So Absolutely. that's something you can take from, from there. And the other thing right. that you're doing right now is very helpful because a lot yeah. of people don't know. They just go and follow the others. And groupthink is actually something I think that we should talk about that's instead it. of brainwashing. That's it. It's not just an individual. It's the whole exactly. group. That is called it is groupthink. Yes. And that's the thing. And, and all of our societies, large or small, I mean, the Buddha field is a microcosm of a macrocosm. It, the Buddha field is a small nation. And even though there was 150 of us, like I said, the structure is the same, whether it's a corporation or whether it's a spiritual group or whether it's, you know, in one of my chapters, um, it's the title of it is what is a cult? It's complicated. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I take really Webster's, it's actually one of my more humorous uh, chapters, but I, I take Webster's dictionary and all of the definitions of a cult. And it can be so broad anywhere from the cult of Beyonce, right? Exactly. Or, you know, you go anywhere from, you know, Charlie Manson to a Comic Con convention, you know? And so, where, where does it become a destructive cult? Where does it become dangerous? And usually, typically, a cult as opposed to a club, they, it usually has a, a leader. Mm -hmm. And the leader is generally narcissistic or eventually becomes a narcissistic sociopath. Mm -hmm. So the complexities of that are um, they're personal and they're challenging. Some people that have been at, and that have grown up in religions, they, you know, um, <laughs> some people will not acknowledge that their religion is a cult. Yeah. And uh, sorry, the size does not matter. You know, and I, I was talking about a, an article that was written and it was entitled The Buddha Field, a 19, a Speedos wearing um, guru makes sex cult, a 1980 sex cult. And I'm like, sex cult? 
okay, there was about maybe a, maybe about 12 men that were sexually abused. The way, the salacious title of that, the way you make it sound, and, and even in the movie, and I have to clarify this, you know, Demetrius says, yeah, it was the booty field. Everybody was fucking everybody. That is so not true. Not true. As a matter of fact, most people thought that they had to be celibate. And some people left because they thought they had to be celibate. So those are really misnomers. And if we were a sex cult, what's the Catholic Church? You know, how, how much pedophilia and murder and mayhem do you see in organized religions? How do you define it as this is dangerous and that isn't? This is bad, that is good. Um, and that becomes very complex. So if a person is born into a religion or a society and they don't know anything else, it could be just as dangerous or just as destructive psychologically and otherwise. Mm -hmm. But they don't know because it, it's life to them. It, it is life. And the consequences of leaving that, you may have to leave your parents or you may have to leave your, your world or your brothers and sisters or what have you. And that is not an e easy thing to do. And in the Buddha field, we were taught, and this is another thing, with religions or politics or whatever, this notion of exceptionalism is a really important factor. And in religions especially, you are groomed to believe that you are the chosen ones, you are the exceptional. And so what we thought and what was a lot of the teaching was everything out there was the dead world, the world of the dead. And only we were the conscious ones. We were actually referred to ourselves as holy company. And so when you have terminology like that and you use it within the culture and within the language, well, what's the opposite of holy company? Unholy company, who wants to be that? You know, what's the opposite of conscious, unconscious, dead? You know, so it's frightening out there. So I better stay here and work it out, you know, and work out all my cognitive dissonance to be able to fit comfortably. Yes. Um, most uh, religions and cults and organizations like this, they, they follow what we call the club model. So what that is, is like you, you basically, you dress in a certain way, you live in a certain way, you act a certain way. And so the more different you are from others, the more the division between us versus them, the more you also uh, become tighter knit and you identify more with it. And this is a strategy they use. So you're an exclusive member of this, while others cannot join. And so when they make it more difficult, then it's, it's harder to join it. You have to make more sacrifices, but then you don't have freeloaders. So you know that those who are in it are dedicated to it. Terrorists do the same thing. They do exactly Absolutely. the same thing. So Absolutely. It, it's just in scale. But when you look at religions, any religion basically that says this is a true religion, everybody else is wrong, is exactly doing that in different degrees. I'm not exactly. saying that religion is a cult necessarily, though right. called like tendencies. Right. But we have to be aware of that. And that needs exactly. to have to be right, to be following the true path, the true religion. Absolutely is what's driving us. So we have to be aware of that. And right on many people are not. Yeah. I talked about in my early life, um, 
my third chapter is called From the Catholic Church to the Road to Nirvana. And uh, <clears throat> I was raised a Catholic in a Catholic school. And as I said, I left Catholicism at the age of reason, which to the Catholics is the age of seven. And uh, what they were indoctrinating us was not reasonable to me. And so I was, <clears throat> I was looking for, but as I say in my book, um, I was still enchanted by certain things. So growing up as a Catholic, the idea of saints, um, the idea of these people who had this transcendental state and certainly in India and in other cultures, they're a dime a dozen in India. There are so many Indian saints. But when you, in the Catholic religion, when you're from a child, you see these images um, of these saints and you hear these stories of martyrdom and, and their alignment, their direct connection or experience with God, you know, I felt, well, I, I was 14 and I had a comparative religions class and the teacher, we were studying Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, all of the isms. And he came across this word nirvana. And I said to him, what's this word mean? And he said, oh, well, uh, some yogis in India experience God directly through a certain type of meditation. Next question. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> is, that, is that possible? And he said, well, apparently. And I'm like, that's it. It has to be possible. So from the time I was about 14, I set out on a journey to find anyone who said, who could look me in the eye and say, I experienced God directly. And when I found that person, I was 20, about 27 years old. So I'd been on this journey since I was 14. I found a person, and I'll go into that in my book, but it wasn't Jaime, it was Jaime's friend. And she claimed that through these four techniques of meditation, which came from India, that you could, yes, experience God directly. So there is an experience in this meditation, which is quite transcendental. This is another thing. The discipline of community life keeps you devoted to whatever that practice is. And you knew, and it is absolutely true. When I left the Buddha field, I no longer practiced that. And for a lot of reasons, but it's, you know, those practices were difficult in normal outside life. It was also difficult when no one else in your world, everybody else was eating crap and doing all kinds of stuff and drinking and getting stoned and whatever. It's a very lonely place to live when you want to strive for sainthood you know and and sainthood to me wasn't oh look at me aren't i a good person it was having that transcendental state that i saw since i was a child about this saint or that saint and saint Teresa and you know saint anthony and all of these great beings in history and i thought well if they did it why why can't i why shouldn't i and <clears throat> So I describe ourselves um, in the Buddha field. Some of us were like Navy SEALs. And you understand in Eastern, in Eastern religion or Eastern philosophy, ego is what keeps you from your divine union, right? You can't have a me and a you. 
that's an instant separation. Mm -hmm. And so the goal, and especially especially in Eastern religion, but a lot of uh, religious, a lot of Christian cults, you know, they're the ones that flog themselves and things like that. Let me transcend my body, mind, and ego so that I can have union with God, which is when you make that commitment and you've got a narcissistic sociopath playing the game with you, that's very handy because everything that you question, everything that you do, he can turn back to you. That's just your ego. You know, you're not surrendered enough. And so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. You understand that the goal, your enemy becomes the ego. And so anything, your desires, anything, your what, any, your questions, all of that becomes ego. And if your goal is to transcend the ego, then a narcissistic sociopath can play in that little game forever. And you will willingly do it. That's why I call this, <clears throat> we were like the Navy SEALs. And I was, which I explain, really, I go into depth when people say, well, why did you do this? Because to me, it was never a coercion. It was never, oh, I'm brainwashed and I don't know what I'm doing. I willingly said, if this is what I need to do, then so be it. I will do it. You know, and it, you know. I talk about the line in the sand and anyone who's not a sociopath has a line in the sand that they will not cross. But there's a lot of little gray lines before you get to that line in the sand, you know, and it depends. I I define three different main types of people who join cults. One is the hummingbirds. The hummingbirds are the ones that just they don't exactly know what they want, but they know what they have. They're not satisfied with. So they'll flitter around to here and flitter around to there. And they're not totally devoted, but they're willing to kind of hang out for a while. I know a lot of those people. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> and they're also hummingbirds in politics, which I go into. Then you've got your soldiers on a mission. And I was in that category. My mission was enlightenment. My mission was divine union. And I will pretty much step over a lot of gray lines to get to that place if that's what I need to do. And then the third type are the kamikazes. Those are the people that have no line in the sand. They will kill or commit suicide for the leader. And so, and, and they're, they're, um, they're interchangeable, those three, you know, and especially in politics. Um, but, you know, there's just certain kinds of people that are really serious about their practice and really willing to go way beyond the norm, um, normal behavior in order to get what they think that they want. And so that's very much the category I was in. When, when we look at that, what I can say, and I love your distinction here and the different categories, I, I agree with that. That is a, a very interesting way of seeing it. And yes, I know people in, in all of those three three ranges. Yeah. But um, yeah. What, what I'm wondering is that a lot of people uh, don't really know themselves. I think it comes down to that, that you don't really have a connection with, with who you are. And this is why we follow this person or this religion. And then we go to another one. And we like, when we think we found the right one, we go to the very end with that, to the extreme. 
And right. even the idea of sainthood, I mean, why not become a full human being? Why not try to explore? Yeah. Why try to go beyond that? Yeah. And that's that, yeah. that need of um, really connecting with who you are. And nobody really teaches you how to do that. I mean, we say it. It's a on the kick. On the, yeah. Yourself. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, what do you mean by that? How can mm -hmm. I become myself? How can mm -hmm. I find myself? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been probably yeah, it's like four decades that I, I just recently think I have a connection with who I am. And it's right. when you when you connect with that, and it's so liberating. It's uh, it's the most spiritual feeling where you don't need to have a guru or a meditation technique or a religion, right. where you just right. see things clearly, and. Yeah. One of my one of my missions, if you like, is to to try to share that with others and to say, look, there is a way of do it. Don't just follow others. Don't just give in to peer pressure. Don't just uh, fall for delusions and these kind of spiritual ideas, because a lot of them are not spiritual at all. And some of right. those leaders who claim to be spiritual leaders are the exact opposite. And absolutely, the cult member is just one. There are so many others that. Yeah. And I notice when they don't live it, we have in uh, what was the documentary Wild Wild Country where you have Osho who is respected. Yeah. And for years, yeah. I thought he was a respected person. I watched the documentary and I say there are things that don't make sense, that right. they're not walking the talk. They are not yeah. really who they say they are. They're using this. They're using yeah. people's anxiety, insecurity and so on. Yeah. And we get it in the political field. He does not actually, I don't think he really, Trump really cares about everything he's saying. I don't think he has an ideology to begin with. He said he could have run as a Democrat, so would it, which would have been completely different. It's just they tell you what you want to hear so they can get that narcissistic supply, so they can yes. gain followers. And people mistake that and they think, oh, he's got our back. He's on our side. No, yeah. he doesn't care about right. any of that. Right. The yes. ideas, the people, the country, the party. Yeah. He doesn't. And that's what narcissists yeah. do. I mean, they don't have a personality. They don't, no. they are probably one of the least connected people. Right. And it's, yeah. it's a disease. I mean, we have to say that this is a, a, it, a it, mental illness, but yeah. most corporations and even I've had to have worked with narcissists in, 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 right. in, uh, in my job, they like these people because they give the impression that they yes. have the knowledge that they're skillful yeah. but in reality they're none of those things and it's so yeah they're very they're very skilled they're very um, yeah in presenting yeah. uh the image very that much so. not skilled very much actual so. skills they have no skills whatsoever exactly yes they're skilled yeah. as narcissists to play you exactly and and you're absolutely right you know arash they what they do because you are absolutely right. This is, and this is what I'm screaming from the rafters. This is a disease. This is a pathology. This isn't just a bad character. He cannot help himself. And he, and neither, Jaime cannot help himself. Trump cannot help himself. Mussolini could not help himself. On and on. Putin cannot help himself. This is a disease. And so they will do whatever it takes to feed the narcissism. So you are absolutely right. The, and this is why I say it is a feedback loop. He was a, Trump was a died in the wool Democrat. His whole life he was a Democrat until he found 
those that he could tap into what their fears were and tap into what they wanted. And he simply developed it for them. And he didn't develop it, but he developed the facade, the Disneyland illusion that this is who he is and this is what he's going to give you. And this is the problem with, you know, when we go back and, and look at, um, you know, who are you and, and whatever. And in, in Western culture, especially, we have become so disjointed, so competitive. So we, we grow up in a culture that is you're not good enough. We, go, we grow up in a culture where you can't see, you want to strive to be a saint because you are so, so um, insecure about who you are. And you've been taught to be insecure. And much of my first section is growing up as a child as a dyslexic. And being a dyslexic in the 50s and 60s, they didn't know what that was. So talk about being misunderstood and ostracized and pushed aside. And so there are so many children that are raised in our Western culture, especially in our society, that they don't have a chance in the world to figure out who they are. So unless they do these amazing feats to be approved of, yeah. you know, then, I mean, they have to win or they have to strive, or they have to become a saint in order to be worthy yeah. in our culture. This is how this is how we do this, and and those who feel like taking advantage of that, they prey on vulnerable psyches like that, hmm. you know. And it's complicated because everybody has a story. You can look at, and as I say in in my story, um, all that is. All that glitters is not gold. Mm -hmm. There was uh, abuse in my life and things like that. And so even though it looked like, oh, I was privileged and I had all of the things that people envy. Well, there are very, very few people out there that, that wealth or prestige has ever given them happiness or anything. And this is most of the people in the Buddha field were looking for that that they could not find in their life. And we did, for a while, we did find that in the Buddha field with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what we kept thinking as it started to get weird. Mm -hmm. In our minds, we thought it, we could change it. We could get it back. This is only temporary, you know? And that's, of course, the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over, thinking it's going to change. Um, but it's so complex with we human beings and our psyche that when you are in the, in the talons of a narcissistic sociopath, first of all, recognize it. I just finished writing, uh, I was asked to write an article, um, how, how to recognize a narcissist. And so I do um, take excerpts from my book for that article. And, and how do you get out of it? And that's a, you know, in, at the end, my chapter, um, I had sort of promised that I would give out of 25 years in a cult and then 12, 13 years in retrospect, 
and then another two and a half years of studying um, what that was all about. Um, I have some little nuggets that that may help, you know, but the first thing to do is to recognize narcissistic behavior. And there's very common traits. And in the second section of my book, uh, which is called The Buddha Field, um, I take the, uh, the, the diagnostic manual of psychological disease and um, I go line by line, you know, I'll take a line and then I'll give several pages of what Jaime did, what Trump did, what Hitler did, what Mussolini did, you know, um, what Jim Jones did, what, you know, all of these various um, commonalities under that description, you know, and so I take you sort of through an analytical point of view, but actually there's a lot of humor in my book because I cannot help it. I'm I, I always resort to sarcasm when it gets really bad. Um, so there's a lot of humor in it. And I do have people who have read it who have said they have both laughed their head off and cried, you know, because it's very raw. You know, I, I wrote it not to proselytize or to tell you this is what you need to do and this is whatever. It's like, no, I'm there with you. This I'm opening the kimono. Uh, this is what I did, <laughs> shit. And, uh, and I understand your decisions and I do understand why you do, or you know, you've made the choices that you have. I get it, I made those choices too. And so first of all, no, you're not alone because you're not, you know, we think, I thought I could never survive outside of the bit of field, that I would go to the dead world and I would have nothing there. And of course, we were trained to think that too. Uh, turns out that's not true. You know, there's a lot of beautiful people out there that that can nourish you, that can be that Buddha field. You know, um, so you know, it's it's so complicated, Arash. It's so complicated, and I spend you know a lot of time sort of untwisting all of the talons of the complications yeah. of that life. The test for finding out narcissists is like three things. First of all, they don't have, have empathy. And they might no. say they do, but you can sense when the feeling is not real. Yes. Lack of empathy. They fake it. Lack of imagination, because when yeah. they speak, they're mostly also not interested in things like poetry. So when people say they don't like poetry, it's like I have my alarm bell going off. And yeah. the third one is sense of humor. And so yeah. they don't have it. They don't understand it because they're so stressed. And it must be horrible to be a narcissist. I mean, it's, it's like it's somebody who is severely depressed. It's not something that uh, you want to go through. It's a disease. Yeah. They need yeah. But the last thing is they don't change. And so this is when we fall for them. When they say they don't, they don't what? They don't change. They cannot they don't change. change. No. They are the same. No. And so mm -hmm. when they come up and say, I regret this, they don't mean it. It's going right. to be the same thing. So if you have right. a parent that's a narcissist, if you have a spouse, a partner, a boss, boss, yeah. you know, which yeah. is, I, I can talk about that too, yeah. is there, there's nothing you can do. So it's no. the best of the, no. like, if you can move on, right. that's the only yeah, thing. We, we do have a tendency, especially very sensitive people to want to 
well, we end up being enablers of that sickness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they can be, they pick up, they pick up social cues. So the appearance of empathy, the appearance of lovingness and stuff, they learn that because that's how they extract, that's how they feed the narcissist. But the thing is, and most experts will attest to, that a narcissist is one of the one main pathologies that there is no cure for. There is no cure because they cannot see that they're, they have a problem. It's everyone else. So until you can see and recognize the problem in you, it will never be cured. And, we, and like, if you are uh, in, in a relationship with, with, uh, with one of them, you should not feel guilty. And that is one thing we say, but I could have done something. And the, the point right. you make, and this is personal experience, also speaking, you can, right? right? And no. uh, it, is, it is terrible. They are suffering a lot, but there's nothing we can do. And psychologists exactly. talk about that too. If, if you don't want to change, if you don't accept there's a problem, I cannot do anything for you. Yes. Possible. Yeah. So, so these people also get to the top because they don't care about any others. They don't have friends. They don't care about right. or love. And that's why right. they get to the top because they are walking over dead bodies to get there without right. any scruples. And yeah. where I have scruples and I don't get to those positions because I, I right. don't care. And so yeah. this is a very unfortunate situation in the world. Now, what can we do to protect us from falling into the trap of, of these kind of people, of cults and so on? We might suggest critical thinking, but then that's not enough because uh, Zimbardo, mm -hmm. and it was Zimbardo who did the prison experiment, he felt right. for it. He thought he was a prison guard and did not realize he was doing a psychological study and he has critical thinking. So what right. is that happens there, that kind of disconnect with reality. It can happen yeah. to everybody. Educated yeah. people. I mean, Zimbardo mm -hmm. was was most educated yeah. person here to, to yeah. have known. He created the test, but he fell for it. Exactly. Is that kind of need, that kind of lack mm -hmm. of connection with who you are, that kind of um, gut feeling too. I mean, I'm sure there are moments where you say, this can't be right. And right. being able and uh, having the courage to, to stand up and saying, you know what, I'm not taking this anymore. I don't care yeah. what the others think. I'm right. out of here. It's so yes. hard. That it is so hard. Very hard. You will be punished and you will be ostracized yes. and you will lose your job if you do that. Right. But there comes a point where you this is the right thing to do. This is yes. what you have to do for yourself. Right? Yes. Yeah, it, it's tough though. It's easy, easier it's, said than done. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to do, and it, and you know I think that people need to if they if they suspect if they are with someone or in a situation where they're having those niggling doubts. Listen to your doubts. Don't override it. That's called cognitive dissonance. Do not talk yourself out of it because you're gut is telling you this is wrong this is not good and so when you when you have those niggling doubts um try and educate yourself on what those mean you know there's a lot of good books out there my i have what 284 citations in my book and four pages of of bibliography mm -hmm. there's a lot of good books out there there's a lot of good conversation about what to look for 
educate yourself. If you are feeling uh, that there's just something very off here, or if you feel that the leader or whoever you're with is taking and not giving, you know, it's all about them. There's your first clue. Okay. Um, if they, if they really cannot if it if it always even if they're you know clever in their conversation but it always turns back to them that's another clue um pay attention to those things especially if your gut starts telling you there's something really off here you know if they are constantly bragging about themselves or putting other people down that is a common trait um they nobody can they they have to maintain their brand and so there cannot be anyone in their environment that is smarter than them or more talented than them and if you see them starting to put you down or putting others around them down there's your first freaking clue pay attention okay because if you see it consistent then there's a narcissist and like you said you will not change this person. You will not. So recognize they are a danger. And the more you feed them, the more you enable them, the greater that narcissism grows until you can get to the point of sociopathy where you can really be in a dangerous situation. Um, and this is where, you know, there was a really uh, frightening series uh, that was released on Netflix called Dirty John. Yeah, have you seen that? Both. Holy mother. Okay. If you want to really see it, and that's a that's a true story. Mm -hmm. If you really want to see the play of how dangerous a narcissist can be, then Dirty John is is something that you should see also Wild Wild Country and Holy Hell and read my book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, those are some really good depictions of narcissistic sociopaths. And, uh, and you can see how- Then you think, I mean- All common. Look around, your neighbor, your family member, your boss, uh, look around and they're all over the place. And they um, are sometimes- This is a good book. Narcissism Denial of the True Self by uh, Alexander Lowen. That's a good book. Um, the uh, the sociopath next door by Martha Stout. Mm -hmm. She basically says that one out of twenty five Americans are sociopathic. Mm -hmm. Woo! Out of three hundred and twenty eight, that's thirteen million people in this country that are sociopathic. Not just you know, not just you know, character flaw. They're pathological. They are ill right and, and that some disease of them are in politics we have to be careful <laughs> not some <laughs> of them a, a majority you will see typically politicians CEO. celebrities so. you know and things like that that have to feed their ego are typical you will find being narcissistic um it, it's a quality that we all have a little narcissism in us that is sort of you know self-confidence and things like that narcissism gives us that and especially when we are you know developing as children we are as infants we all think we're the the, the world revolves around us um it's when it grows into a pathology and then a sociopathy and then a psychopathy is when you know that's when there's no turning back 
the book uh, Too Much and Never Enough by Mary Trump. Um, she is the niece of Donald Trump and she's also a, a, a PhD psychologist. And she basically <clears throat> in that book, she talks about um, she talks about Trump's father and his mother. And, you know, he and I, Trump and I share a similar father in a lot of ways. And so there's part of me, if he weren't originally the president of the United States and had that much power and that much whatever, uh, there would be a part of me that would relate and feel sorry for him. I don't, but, uh, but I can understand where that developed and it developed as an early child and that lack of secure attachment uh, along with abuse and things like that. And so, you know, with Jaime as well, Jaime was sexually abused as a child. He lost his mother at age two. His father was uh, out of, was a diplomat and, and left him with uh, the ranch uh, hands in Venezuela who sexually assaulted him as a child. You know, he was sexually assaulted, no doubt, by the priests. So, you know, the guy had, I can understand if I widen back and have compassion for how this occurs, but nevertheless it occurred. So, you know, you can love them, but don't enable them. You know, you don't have to be in the way uh you, you don't know have to love them it's just that you understand and i i, yes. I the point of seeing them these are human beings i mean they're, they're monsters at the same time they're yes and with narcissists yes. you do not have feelings so don't uh, that part is 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 but again yeah. not necessarily their fault it is something that happens to them it's exactly genetics, it's part of the experiences but yeah. we don't have to take the brunt and we have to think about things. We have to be mindful no. of our actions, of our thoughts, of what we put on, on social media and just be aware of what is it we're, we're doing and not to fall into the trap, not to deceive ourselves. Yes, yes. The, the big lie is the big deception that so many people could fall for a narcissist. So frightening. It astounds me. Well, this is what happened in the 30s, in 1930 in Germany. And um, when you, one of the most important and critical things that we're seeing, and I wrote several chapters on the QAnon phenomenon, mm -hmm. and um, I also talk about the, um, the shadow side of all of us that most of us um, deny. It is there. So therefore, yeah, so therefore we project it on our perceived enemies. And so, you know, one of the things I saw, this was uh, Adam Schiff who was having a Zoom meeting. This is during COVID and he was having a Zoom meeting with other uh, members, uh, congressmen and what have you. And they were, they were talking about this QAnon phenomenon, you know? And there was one of the congressmen who, God, I wished I was in on this Zoom conversation because it, it was like, they were all scratched in their head going, I don't get it. How could this happen? You know, and and this congressman said, how could anyone believe that? Well, congressman, 66% of Americans believe in an actual devil. 93% of religious people believe in Satan and an actual real devil. And so 
and they project anything that they don't understand or anything that's scary or blah, blah, blah. They project out there that these people are either minions of the devil, you know, doing the work of the devil, or that it is the devil himself. So what, what they don't really understand is the origin of QAnon, where it came from, and most of it came from juveniles having a good time. Uh, a lot of it, most of it came from Asia, middle, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, the Philippines, Japan, whatever, with these kids who thought this would be fun. Let's uh, whatever, you know, put, put this out on 4chan and 8chan and get it out on Reddit. And so we, you know, as a country, when you're bored, especially when you're locked down and you got nothing else to do but play around in the fantasy, most people are they grow up in Western culture. They're growing up with the, the Christian heaven and hell demon or, or Satan and Jesus, right? So I talk about you have to have, you have to, he is a, Satan is an integral part in our culture and an integral part in Christianity because without Satan, you could not have Jesus. Who would Jesus save you from, you know? Christianity would would fall apart completely. You would, versus them. That, that you would no longer be saved by anything. So to become now an emissary of Jesus, an emissary of God to thwart the architect of evil, Satan himself. Well, how how appetizing is that? You know, let's not look at ourselves and the shadow side of ourselves. It has to be someone else out there. And so it's it's a very convoluted but very real situation that is becoming more and more insidious. So the whole <laughs> the whole baby eating Satan worshiping baby eating pedophile story, know where that came from? The identical story. It was written in 1902. It was written by a Russian fascist and it became part of the writings of Mein Kampf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, is how, this is how the Jew was portrayed in the 1920s to the T. They didn't even change it. They literally extracted word for word verbatim, which I quote in my book, verbatim. Yeah. Yes, and this is, this is from the, uh, the protocol of the elders of Zion. And this is, was written, this was written, a, a fabricated story about the Jews. And if you think we are not headed, we are not spiraling down that slippery slope, think again, because we are. And that sounds, oh, extreme. No, we have extremists in this country that are, that are growing by leaps and bounds. And they are taking this narrative that was plagiarized and they, they're taking it hook, line, and sinker. And they're also using it. The soldiers on a mission, which are, you know, I also write about um, a, a very important factor, which is the family. Mm -hmm. This is Jeff Charlotte's work. Uh, Jeff Charlotte was like me and like Will. He was in a cult. He was in a cult called the family. And there is a documentary on Netflix, I hate to say it, 
Yeah, it's not a very good documentary. Um, uh, it, it, I was I, not, I I've seen it. Interesting in terms of insights that I didn't have before. So it did. I, right. I saw the documentary twice, but I also read Charlotte's book, The Family, and I read his book, Sea Street. And in comparison, it's like, you know, but the problem is, you know, with those two books, they're so loaded down with data that you've really got to be, to slog through that. You know, you've really got to either be on a research project or whatever, which is what I was. And I put sort of a Reader's Digest version of who they are and what they're doing in our political system in about, in, in one chapter called The Mother of All Cults. Uh, it's really dangerous. And they have really taken over not only our Congress, our Senate, but our judicial system. And they have been at this for about 80 years in the United States. And these guys have gotten, the camel has gotten its nose under the tent. And so when you are, when you are an exceptionalist to such an extreme, you are willing to kill or to die. And you're willing to play a long game and so what they believe is what they're trying to do is um, their idea of Jesus is not the idea that, that possibly you and I would relate to, the Lamb of God, the peacemaker. Oh, no, 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 no. Their idea of Jesus is not the Lamb of God. Their idea of Jesus is the wolf. And he came here with a sword, right? to literally slay. He, they, we are looking at a 21st century crusades. This is the, the Western version of the Taliban and they are very serious players, but they're stealth. They're different than the Taliban or ISIS because they're stealth. And the long list that I have given in my book of what congressmen and what members of the Senate and what members of our judicial system are part of the family will make your hair curl. Do not think that they are not with one goal. And that goal, as Amy Coney Barrett said, their goal is to make a kingdom of heaven on earth, no matter what. So from their perspective, from their standpoint, uh, because they believe in Jesus plus nothing, okay, that if they're successful, then Jesus ordained it. So they can pretty much do whatever they want, including murder, mayhem, infidelity, and everything else. As long as they're successful, then Jesus condoned it, and so therefore it must be righteous. Uh, that's scary. So the way they look at Trump is Trump is their version of a modern day King David. Now you remember King David and Bathsheba and he killed Bathsheba's husband so that after he knocked her up, he could commit infidelity and everything else. He was kind of a not too good of a guy, but from their perspective, God put him in that position. Even though he's a bad guy, God used him and that's the way they see Donald Trump. This is why they can, on the day of the insurrection, go, oh, my God, I'm done. I'm over. This is it. You know, this is my line in the sand. And 24 hours later, well, you know, it wasn't really that. And they're all on board. These are the people that are family members. Check it out. But I, you know, if you don't want to read those long books, which they are, the first book is um, 
the family is pretty much the history of the evangelical uh, evangelical church in the United States for the last 200 years. And then C Street is the infiltration into our political system. And uh, they've been playing a long game for about 80 years. And like I said, that camel has gotten its nose under the tent. And so this, what is happening in this country is an autocracy, yes, but it is more importantly a theocracy and it's stealth. So these overturning of laws and all of this stuff that we're seeing, this blitzkrieg of democracy is happening because they are soldiers on a mission and their mission from their standpoint is for Jesus. So don't think that it's not happening because it is, it's happening in lightning speed in comparison to our history. So it's, uh, it's yeah, a and I talk about that. Also of opportunity with these kind of crises and especially people talking about these things and, and uh, dealing with them and thinking about them is there's the, also the opportunity to forge ahead and find uh, a much more peaceful path, one that includes everyone and one that leads us to a, to, a, to a better world. And I think that is the case. And thank you so much for an amazing conversation for thoughtful, thought-provoking, insightful uh, ideas awesome. and thoughts. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on Arash's World. And Absolutely. All the best with the followers. Yes. Thank well, you thank so you. Thank you. All right. Take care.